I don't remember the exact timeline, but approximately a year and a half to two years ago, my son Micah and I climbed Pico do Jaragua with uh, some friends, some other friends who are actually here this morning. Uh, has anyone else ever done that? Anybody else here ever climbed Pico do Jaragua? It's, it's worth doing. If you haven't done it before, you should do it. Uh, but I remember there were several times on the way up where uh, I, we would, I, well, I say we, it wasn't really we, it was I, I would stop. <laughs> and, uh, and I would pause and catch my breath and I would look down and think, wow, I've come a long way. And then I would turn and look up and say, oh, <laughs> there's still a long way to go. And no matter, for a long time, no matter how far it seemed we had come, it seemed that there was still an equally far way to go. But in each one of those pauses, I would drink a little water, gather my energy for the next stage of the climb. And yes, eventually we did arrive at the top and it was worth it. And in our study of the book of Acts, we are almost one third of the way through the book. And at this pivotal point, Luke pauses to give his readers a one verse summary to remind us as readers, but also to remind the church at the time where they had come from, so where they had been, but then also to prepare them to remind them about where they are going. The context of this verse is after Saul's conversion, after his exile into Arabia, his return to Damascus, and his presentation to the church in Jerusalem, and then following that, his subsequent escape from Jerusalem for those, from those who wanted to kill him. If you haven't noticed this yet, everywhere Saul go, goes, people want to kill him, okay? Uh, when, so he escapes from Jerusalem, and goes back to his hometown in Tarsus. And as far as we know, all the details that we have historically and biblically, Paul stays there for a few years ministering. We're gonna encounter him um, a little bit later again. But right now, that's where Saul is, and it's at this point that Luke pauses and he gives us a one-verse summary. And though it's brief, it's packed with theology and it's packed with reminders Again, reminders about where they've been and where they're going. So I'll be reading this verse this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Here, Luke gives us five reminder and preparatory points. Reminders because they draw our attention once again to the themes of Acts that we've been seeing through these first nine chapters, but at the same time preparatory because they will continue to be the foundation of even broader and greater church expansion in the coming chapters. Here are the five points, and if you don't catch them all right now, you'll have an opportunity later to get them down when we address each one. First of all, Broadly, where the church has been and where it's going. Secondly, the oneness and unity of the church. Thirdly, the guiding principle of daily life in the early church. 
Fourthly, the power of the church. And then finally, the primary calling of the church. So this first point, where the church has been and where it is going. When I use this phrase, I'm speaking physically and geographically, okay, not primarily spiritually. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Let's go back and recall Luke's outline of this book in the first chapter, chapter one, verse eight, in the words of Jesus, the outline of the book of Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, where? Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if we, can, if, we, if we imagine that the church, the early church at this point is kind of halfway up this uh, parabola, this curve of growth, and they look back and they see that the church started in Jerusalem, but it has spread to now Judea and Samaria, and that's what Luke says. It's, it's gone Judea, Galilee, Samaria. It has grown, it has spread. That's where they've been. But then he turns their attention by implication to the future. Where is it going to go? What's lacking? Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, they're covered. What's left? The ends of the earth. In the coming chapters, we're going to see the church grow exponentially. I mean, just explode, advance into Gentile territory and go to the ends of the known world of the time. Now, we already caught a, a little preview, a slight hint of this with the Ethiopian eunuch and his encounter with Philip on the southern road there into the desert. So we already have that hint that the gospel has begun to even move beyond just the borders of Judea and Samaria. Now, as we look at this principle, as we hear it, I want us to be reminded of God's heart for his church and God's heart for the world. God's heart is one of expansion. And when, when we think of that in human terms, there are times that we, we get the wrong impression. Because when we think of the growth of a church, say like the growth of our church, there's always a little tinge of pride for us, I think, involved um, because of numbers. I've told you before that there are times when I um, am in uh, different settings with other pastors. Maybe it's with other pastors from the International Baptist Convention or other pastors here in Sao Paulo. And there, there's this often an underlying just sense of everyone trying to figure out how big everyone else's church is. You know? And unfortunately, that's often driven by pride. Um, but when God's heart for his church is expansion, it's not an issue of pride. It's not just about being able to count numbers and say, hey, my church is bigger than your church. It's because the expansion of the church means souls that are being saved from sin and destruction and hell. It means souls are being redeemed, renewed, made new by the power of the Spirit through repentance and then belief in Jesus Christ. So this is an incredible gift, and when we think that's God's heart, that's what he wants for his church. For the early church, he wanted it, his plan was that it started in Jerusalem, but then it exploded outward to the ends of the earth. 
His heart for his church hasn't changed today. It's still his heart that we would expand, not for pride, not for arrogance, not for comparison, but for the glory of God and for the good of souls. That we would be a bright, mighty light of redemption and reconciliation in a dark, perverted, broken world. Let's not forget this. The second reminder and preparatory point is the oneness and unity of the church. Even as Luke describes the spread of the church through Judea and Samaria, did you notice that in this verse he uses a singular pronoun and he speaks of the church as a singular entity. He doesn't say churches grew up all through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. He says the church spread. Back in chapter four, verse 32, uh, I don't know if you remember that context, you don't need to turn there right now, but just remember that we were told that all the believers were of one mind and heart. They were one, they were united. And with this statement here, Luke is reaffirming their unity, even as they are spread geographically over a larger area. And this is a reminder for us, the church is one organism. What I just talked to you about, that, that sense of comparison between local churches or between local church leaders, that makes no sense at all if we have the vision that we are one, that all true believers in Jesus are part of the singular church, the body of Christ, he is the head, and each member, each individual person is growing together into that head, even if we meet together locally and separately, even if we are spread over a vast geographical area. So with this statement, Luke affirms the unity of the church. It seems a small thing in writing, the church, but it's intentional, the church, one, one organism, one body of Christ. There are not many bodies of Christ. There are many members of the body of Christ. There are members, many smaller gatherings of parts of the body of Christ, but there's only one body. Jesus is our head, and all of us are connected in and through him. Yet, how often we do become very local-focused. And that's understandable to a point because we live locally. We do not live globally, right? We live right where we are. But just a question that, that oftentimes bothers me personally for myself is how committed am I to pray for um, my fellow members of the, the church universal who are facing persecution? Our context right now, for now, right here in Sao Paulo, we are very free um, to live, um, live the gospel. That doesn't mean we don't encounter resistance. It doesn't mean that we don't encounter challenge or difficulty. But think about this. We are, we are meeting together this morning with no shame. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover the doors. We don't have to sneak around. Um, we just have to wear masks, right? And we can gather together. Um, but does it bother us to know that there is violence against fellow Christians in numerous places around the world? And does that inspire us to pray for them? Do we really understand that they are part of us and we are part of them, even though we've never met and probably never will 
on this earth. So I know that we assent to the corporate nature of the church in our minds, but does that play out in our day-to-day reality? Because here Luke reminds us that the church, though spread over the face of the earth, remains one corporate entity. The third point, the third reminder and preparation is this, and I'll repeat it because it's kind of a long sentence. The guiding awareness governing the daily life of the church. The guiding awareness governing the daily life of the church. How did the church live? It lived in the fear of the Lord. That was not an occasional awareness, it was a way of life. And over the last, actually I was looking back in my documents, over the last 10 years, I have preached a couple different times on the fear of the Lord. We were reminded of it specifically in Acts through the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit and and to the apostles and then, then they fell down at Peter's feet dead. And the following verse says that great fear seized all who heard about this, the fear of the Lord. But since we are the heirs of the early church, since they are our forebearers and ancestors in the faith, this serves as a reminder to us of what a godly community will be like, what it will value and how it will live. Um, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to participate in contemporary society without a smartphone. I don't think we've quite arrived there yet, but we're on the verge. And you know this, I know this. If you accidentally leave your home without your phone, what do you do? You go back and get it. It's almost inconceivable nowadays that we would go somewhere, anywhere, without our phones. And if we don't have our phones, let's be honest with each other, you feel like you are missing part of yourself all day, right? It's like you can't communicate or you think you can't. It's like I cannot track the immediacy of an email. I cannot, I cannot believe, well, email, what's that? I know, we don't use that anymore. But like a, a WhatsApp or a signal message or uh, any of the proliferation of messaging apps, it's like, I'm... I might have to wait 30 minutes. I might have to wait an hour before I get this WhatsApp. I mean, and not only so, but if you consider just maybe 15 years ago, just 15 years ago, if someone had said in a a relatively small device, you will be able to conduct almost any kind of business that you need to conduct. You will have access to email, to the internet, to social networking. You will have access to video conferencing. You will be able to send and receive not only voice messages, but video messages. You will be able to share meaningless memes um, with friends. You will be able to send gifts that make people laugh. You will be able to, um, anyway, you understand where I'm going with this. uh, Banking, you know, all... 
all financial transactions you accomplish in the palm of your hand. So if, if we were to say 15 years ago, all this would be available in this one relatively small device for good or for ill, you would make an effort, you would make a sacrifice to have one of those devices. And we see that today. We see today that all of us sacrifice, for some it's a greater sacrifice than for others, but we sacrifice to have a smartphone. And our kids, as they grow up, it seems like the age at which they begin to ask for or beg for phones gets younger and younger and younger and younger. But the point that I want to make, up, make is this. It, because of all those functions, because of all those apparent benefits of a phone, it's as though modern society doesn't, cannot even conceive of living without it. So, just briefly as a summary, I want to list a number of aspects of the fear of the Lord that scripture affirms. The fear of the Lord lasts forever. The fear of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord lengthens life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. The fear of the Lord enables you to avoid evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life and rest. The fear of the Lord is a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord will keep us from sinning. So if there's one thing, I hesitate to call it a thing, if there's one awareness that would give us all those things, and that's just a short summary, why would we not hunger and thirst for it? Why would we not sacrifice to have it, to live in it, as we would sacrifice for the latest, most powerful, fastest smartphone? Why would we not do all we can to gain this fear? Now, I know that for many of us, the next question will be, well, how do we get that? How, how do we live in the fear of the Lord? I don't believe that there is a formulaic answer to say, just do A plus B plus C and you will have the fear of the Lord. But I do know that a fear of the Lord comes primarily through encounters with with the risen Savior, with God himself. Because when we catch a glimpse and understanding of who he is, then the fear, the healthy fear that arises in us of transgressing against a holy God will be a natural response. But there is one, at least one very practical principle about pursuit of the fear of the Lord that the Bible does indicate to us. And this is in, in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Um, it's at the very end of the book of the law of Moses. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has been reviewing with the people of Israel everything that they've gone through, everything that they've experienced, their hardships, their highs and their lows. He's reviewing the law that God has given them as they prepare to enter the promised land. That's the, the category, that's the, 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 the context. And he is inviting them, not inviting actually, commanding them that every seven years, 
the entire population would gather together in one place at a place that God would choose and then listen to what God commands them to do when they gather. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children, okay, so parents and all of our community that has uh, an impact and influence over and into the lives of our children, listen to this. And kids, this is for you too, okay? So listen, their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. What's the principle? The fear of the Lord grows in God's people as they are immersed in his word, in his law. And so he addresses both the adults. You hear it, and you hear it repeatedly over and over, and you grow in the fear of the Lord. Children. So this is both for children to take in the word of the Lord, but also for parents, for teachers, and for, I would say for every adult, every young adult, every older adult in the church, you are a representative, you are a testimony, you are an example to the children that God has given us as a community. To the children need to take in, and those who are over the children in authority need to be committed to teaching and giving the word of the Lord to the children. This is going to be the source of the fear of the Lord in them. Because we encounter God in scripture. Jesus was the word made flesh, the word of God made flesh. And where do we encounter Jesus in the pages of scripture? So I'm I'm not arguing that this is the only way that we grow in the fear of the Lord, but perhaps it's the primary way. Through hearing, believing, and enacting the word of God. Because in his word, we see the consequences of living without the fear of the Lord. There are a lot of stories in scripture that describe the pain of not living in the fear of the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira is one of those stories. Not the only one by any means, but it's a more recent one that we've, we've looked at recently. But we also see the power and fruit that, that is in the lives of those who do live in the fear of the Lord. Let's move on to the fourth point, the fourth reminder, the fourth preparation, and that is the power of the church. It shouldn't be any surprise to any of you who have been remotely following along in the study of Acts that the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's Acts 1.8 again. That's the outline for the book. Right up front, where is the power of the church going to come from? From the Holy Spirit. And Luke affirms it when he says that the church here in this verse is encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought um, about the word encourage itself, what that word actually means? 
what the English form of that word is, to encourage. It means to put courage into. So if the Holy Spirit encourages the church, the Holy Spirit is putting, placing, infilling the church, putting courage into the church and her members, into us. Think about that for a moment. So the strength and courage to live our lives as God intends comes from the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. And here I also want to make a connection for us between the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11, the first few verses there are are verses that we usually read around Christmas time or during Advent. And that's where it talks that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And as Isaiah prophesies the coming of Jesus, because Jesus was that shoot, um, Jesse was his forebearer um, here on earth. And as he describes this shoot that's coming up, he describes that he's going to be full of the Spirit. And then he describes the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. And one of the descriptors of the Spirit of the Lord is, is that he is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he, meaning Jesus, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. I think all of us would have a desire to live and walk and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord, then those two things can't be separated. So to be encouraged by the Spirit, to live, minister, speak, love in the power of the Spirit, it is inseparable from living in the fear of the Lord. Jesus himself, Isaiah says, delights in the fear of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is the power of the church. He is the source of courage and the source of the fear of the Lord. And that brings us finally to our last point, the primary calling of the church. Now, broadly speaking, the calling of every believer individually and of the whole church corporately is to glorify God. That's why we were created. A couple weeks ago, Felipe Machias, when he was preaching, reminded us of this fact. In the context of the book of Acts, how does God continually call his church to glorify him? through witness, right? Through witness, through evangelism, through testimony. The church increases in numbers. That's how this verse ends. They're enjoying a time of peace. They're strengthened. They are living in the fear of the Lord. They're encouraged by the Holy Spirit and they grow in numbers. How does that happen? 
Do you think it happens because all the believers stayed at home, slept a lot, rested a lot, played ancient Near Eastern video games, you know, spent a lot of time on the ancient Near Eastern uh, internet, and uh, were just kind of isolated, but they were resting, they were resting. No, it's because they were evangelizing. It's because they were so full of the courage of the Spirit, because they were living in the fear of the Lord, they could not help but share, but speak, but proclaim. So we notice that persecution has stopped because the prime persecutor has been converted and transformed. So persecution has stopped, but evangelism hasn't. Just because the church is in a time of peace doesn't mean that it's in a time of inactivity. Rather, it means a time of rest from persecution so that the church can be strengthened, grow in the fear of the Lord, be filled with courage by the Holy Spirit, and live out their calling to be witnesses. And just once again, I think it's worth re-mentioning that uh, two weeks ago when Philippi was preaching, he challenged us and he asked us what the primary motivation to evangelism should be. Like what should drive the church the most to proclaim the gospel and to share the glory of God? Um, the lost, the fact that they are, people are dying without knowing Jesus, that's a motivation. But is that the primary motivation? No, the primary motivation is the glory of the almighty God that he reflects through us. As we are obedient to share his gospel, his glory is reflected and it grows in intensity on the earth. Please hear me. We don't make the glory of God grow because the glory of God cannot grow. It is. It is. But it can be reflected and grow in intensity in its projection on the earth. And God does that through his church. So to bring this together as a close, to review as the church prepares for the quantum leap into the Gentile world and expansion beyond their imagining. And we have to get this, friends, because today it takes information or disinformation a matter of seconds to cross the globe. And you know, I mean, this is where the term viral news or a viral meme or a viral tweet or whatever it is, what does it mean by viral? It just, it, within, literally within the space of 30 minutes, that could be all over the globe and replicating. So when we consider growth of knowledge or growth of information or growth of a news story, we forget that at the time that Luke is writing, none of that existed. Letters took weeks, if not months, to get to their addressee. And so when we see the gospel spreading like this, that is not a human thing. It can't be. It is the power of the glory of God that does not need the internet and does not need cell service and doesn't need television or cable or anything else because it is the truth. And God expands and spreads it. It's remarkable when we think of how fast it spread and how broadly it spread and how deep it spread in a relatively short time without any of the modern communication devices that we have at our disposal today. 
They have come from Jerusalem and they're going to the ends of the earth. They're one body, one united entity, even though they're vastly spread. Their guiding awareness is of the fear of the Lord and that fear guides them in their daily lives. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit as he puts courage into them. Courage to live in a way that glorifies and honors God. And finally, they continue to fulfill their calling to evangelize and be Christ's witnesses. And that's how his word, how his gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth. So as you might have guessed, these points also serve as an assessment tool for us as well. Self-assessment as individuals and then beyond corporately to this part of the body of Christ. So we examine ourselves in the light of the experience of our spiritual ancestors, our spiritual mothers and fathers of the early church. Do we live in the fear of the Lord? We can ask that question both corporately, we can ask it individually. It begins individually, I think, before we move to the corporate. And that's an assessment that each of us needs to make. I don't know if there's really an answer to that question, yes or no. It's probably more of a continuum. And our desire, I hope, would be that we would be growing in the fear of the Lord as, an, as the guiding awareness of our daily interactions. Do we rely on the Holy Spirit for our courage? Or do we try to engender it out of our own efforts? I think a lot of this has to do with simply reminding ourselves intentionally that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but we can go days and weeks, months, perhaps even years without actually considering and reminding our own souls that the Holy Spirit lives in us. That he, God Almighty, a member of the Trinity, inhabits the soul of the believer, inhabits the physical body of a believer, and inhabits the church corporate. And finally, a question that has come up over and over and over and over and over again, almost every sermon through Acts. Are we fulfilling Christ's mandate to be his witnesses? Are we glorifying God by spreading knowledge of his gospel and his message of redemption on this earth? 